the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by the irrepressible Jeremy Goldcorn, who remarkably has been certified as having no criminal record in his 20 years in China. How are you, Jeremy? <laughs> wait, 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 no, no, do, do tell us. I mean, I'm curious. How, how is it that your many crimes and misdemeanors have gone undetected or unreported? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, the all-knowing big brother Chinese state thinks uh, that I'm well, great. So, if you're you not going to give me a straight I, answer. Look, I had to apply for a visa, so I asked the police for a certificate I'd never committed a crime, and they said I had not. So oh I have God. it in black and white. Well, so so much for the all-knowingness of, of, of the Chinese government. Well, Jeremy, if you're not going to give me a straight answer for that question, I have a, another one for you. That was what, a straight answer, Kaiser. What, what, what go do, ahead. What do the Winklevoss twins and corrupt Chinese officials have in common besides an uh, often hostile relationship with Mark Zuckerberg? Well, I guess uh, if you're referring to corrupt Chinese officials who might be trying to export their ill-gotten gains uh, to foreign countries using Bitcoin... Then that's that's your what you're referring to. That's right. They have Bitcoin in common. So today we're going to try to wrap our heads around the uh, best known virtual currency out there, Bitcoin. And uh, one of the first things that you realize on trying to get a handle on how Bitcoin has developed since its introduction is that the Bitcoin story really can't be told without some knowledge of China. China plays a very large role in how the whole saga has played out to date, as we will see. And you need to also know a fair bit about technology, right? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you need to be past, like, page oh. one on using your iPhone, I suppose, to oh, use Bitcoin. The whole process, actually, of cre- I mean, if you want to mine the stuff, you, you, yeah. you, there's, there's a requirement of a good bit of hardware, horsepower, and some pretty sophisticated problems. Yeah, you now. need to be tech-savvy at the very least. And you also need a pretty good grounding, I imagine, in economics, yeah? I mean, I don't know many people, actually, uh, I only know one right now, and he I've only just met, who... Uh, have these three areas of expertise, China, technology, and economics, converging in their one person. That's why Zenon Capron Cap- is, uh, in many ways, the best person to explain Bitcoin. And indeed, he has... And written, especially Bitcoin in China. Yeah, he's written a brief book, a Penguin special about Bitcoin called Chomping at the Bitcoin. We are delighted to welcome Zenon Capron to Seneca Today. Zenon is founder of Capron Asia, a Shanghai-based financial industry research and advisory company. Welcome to Seneca, Zenon. Thanks, Kaiser. Great to be here. Uh, Zenon, I should add that you were formerly at Intel in Shanghai. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've been in China about 10 years, and I came out to um, China originally with Intel based in Shanghai. That's correct. You were global banking industry manager? Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you managed Intel sales and marketing strategy for the financial services industry. So there you have it. It's all technology, uh, financial services and banking, and, of course, uh, China. So he is indeed one of those rare individuals who, through experience, has become qualified to write on this kind of esoteric topic. Um, I'm curious, what, what, what actually got you interested in virtual currencies in general and in Bitcoin in particular? Sure. So, I mean, since since I've been in China, the financial industry has been a big part of what we've been looking at, both uh, at Intel and the current job. And I guess it was about, <clears throat> I guess about June of last year, so June 2013, mm-hmm. uh, we had gone to a conference in Singapore and somebody had been talking about Bitcoin. Uh, at that point. And we started to look into it a little bit more. And the the timing was kind of fortuitous because it was right around May of last year that the Chinese really started to get a feel for what Bitcoin was. Uh, So in the book, we talk about the um, CCTV documentary that was aired in May. And as you guys and most listeners know, I mean, anything that goes on CCTV is kind of government approved to a certain extent. Mm. So it was kind of a 
a tacit acceptance by the government of this new technology that was out there and, and, and this new idea of virtual currency. So that's really where we first started getting into it. And then over the course of 2013, we saw the Chinese get into Bitcoin in a big way. Uh, so really starting in May and then picking up again in October, November, and in November when we saw the the price spike that it went over $1,000. Right. You, you can see from the graph that that was largely driven by China. And um, Zenon, those uh, that 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 fever that interest what was that driven by was it mostly speculation was it people tr- really trying to get their money out of the country what was the the prime driver yeah i mean the, the chinese if you if you look at a lot of the investment kind of <laughs> programs slash schemes uh that have proliferated in china over the over the years there's a lot of um kind of money grab or get rich uh, schemes Here out in there. China? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it, it, like the stock market in the early 2000s is a great example, right? Up until it started to go down in 2007, 2008, you had everybody that was investing in the stock market. And it was really just a one-way bet. I mean, everybody mm. was getting involved. It was going up. People were making money. So I think a lot of people saw Bitcoin as a similar vehicle. Uh, I mean, certainly if you look at percentage-wise, I mean, the the number one hedge fund globally last year was a hedge fund that was just solely invested in Bitcoin, right. Bitcoin long. And so if you think about, it was $13 at the beginning of 2013, and if you sold at the peak, it was about $1,000. So there were a lot of people that got on from the speculation side. Actually, Kaiser, you mentioned before, and Jeremy, you kind of hinted at it. We, you know, in our research, we found that it really didn't have too much to do with corrupt officials trying to get their money overseas. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was something I was going to ask you about. Yeah, so we, 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 we have a couple of contacts in Shanghai uh, that can take you to the Huangniao, you know, the, the yellow cows to help you get your money out. And one of the people that we talked to, for half a percentage point, they're able to take your money from RMB and you can pick it up the next day in Hong Kong dollars in Hong Kong for, for half a percentage point. And for Bitcoin, and as, as the, the price of Bitcoin is very volatile right now, sure. and you know, getting in or out of Bitcoin will cost you between one to two percent. So it's not an efficient means of schlepping your money out yeah. of the country, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, the wealthy in China have always had ways to get their money out of the country. Whether whether it's these schemes who are having, uh, you know, a Hong Kong company that's using trading uh, to get money out. So, you know, it, although that was one aspect that was heavily reported in the press, we kind of didn't think that that was a big source of interest in Bitcoin. Let's go back as as you do in your book and, and kind of do a Bitcoin 101. Uh, how did this? Uh, what's the, the the history of this? Uh, who created Bitcoin uh, and uh, and toward what end? Sure. So in in 2009, uh, a person or persons who went by the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto uh, came up with an idea of having a completely distributed virtual currency. So if you think about any currency today, there's a certain percentage of it that's virtual insofar that, you know, if you have renminbi, it comes up when you go into online banking and, you know, there's a certain amount that's in your bank. But the idea of Bitcoin was that there was no physical currency. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the second key idea was that it was decentralized. So with any other currency around the world, you have, you know, the Federal Reserve in the States, you have the PBOC here in China that controls the amount of the currency that's available in the market. And so one of the key caveats of Bitcoin is that it's decentralized. Uh, So the easiest way to think about it is if you have an accounting ledger that everybody has access to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we set up a a virtual currency here in this room, we virtually agree on how much money Kaiser has, how much money Jeremy has, how much money Zenon has, and then we share that information uh, in the net. So there's not actually a physical currency, but there's a virtual 
uh, a virtual good that we all agree has value that we can use for purchasing goods or, uh, you know, trading. Who, whose value is is uh, supposed to be, it's sort of a perfect market in the sense that its only value is that the market trusts it to be worth that amount of money. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at other stores of value, I mean, the 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 value that's behind that has changed over time. I mean, gold originally was was valuable for what it was and what you can make out of it. You know, dating way back uh, into Egyptian times, uh, countries went on to the gold standard then and came off the gold standard. So the value of gold, it's this it's this perceived value of everybody that holds it or everybody that recognizes it has value. And kind of similar to the U.S. dollar or the RMB right now. I mean, the U.S. dollar is backed up by the good faith of the U.S. government. That's right. But that's not gold anymore. So it's the belief that the government is going to be there, is able to support that currency. And so really the value of Bitcoin and what what the value that they're trying to get out of it right now is the value that people see that it has. Uh, like gold, Bitcoin is also mined, uh, if uh, virtually or metaphorically. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, mining is quite complicated, but in in its basic form, when you, when you have this account or this ledger that's out there that everybody has to agree to, all of those transactions need to be verified. So if I sent you one Bitcoin, it would need to be confirmed by the network that, yes, I have the Bitcoin mm-hmm. and I can send it to you. And then that needs to be written into the accounting ledger. So basically, this process of mining is a number of computers distributed around the world because it's decentralized that are confirming all of these transactions. How does a, a, a uh, country or, or well, how does an entity, say say I as an individual, want to start playing Bitcoin? I mean, how do I sign up so that uh, my account is part of that? Sure. So th- there's pretty much two ways you can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can either trade something for it or you can mine. Uh, so so looking at mining first, because that process is uh, confirming these transactions to incentivize people to actually do that with their computers, there are rewards of Bitcoin. So if, you're, if your computer is out there and confirming these transactions, you might get Bitcoin as a reward. The other way is trading. Uh, so that could be trading for uh, kind of a fiat currency or trading for goods or services. A fiat currency, I think we should explain uh, for non-Bitcoin enthusiasts. Or um, is... non-currency enthusiasts. <laughs> fiat currencies. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really a term that wasn't historically used, but really uh, over the past couple of years has come into widespread use. And it's basically a demand currency. So so fiat means that, you know, by fiat, the government by has... By decree of the government. But yeah. uh, basically in layman's terms, it's the US dollar, the pound, the euro, yeah. the renminbi. Yeah. It's, it's, it's money that governments make. Essentially, backed yeah. by a government. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I'm very um, interested in about Bitcoin is that as I understand it, because of the way it works, so you, basically you have any computer on the internet that is dealing in Bitcoin. They communicate with each other, and because of the way it's coded, essentially, they know what is real Bitcoin and what what's not. And also, it's traceable, isn't it? And it seems to me it's quite interesting that governments have tended to be more hostile to Bitcoin than one might expect if you think of a, a means of transferring currency that actually you could track like yeah, drug dealers' use of money. In some ways, it's the most transparent way we've found to move money around, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's that's another, I mean, kind of along the lines of um, corrupt officials using to get the money out. I mean, a lot of people think that it's completely anonymous, but it's actually, you know, the, the number one currency for terrorism, for financing terrorism or for drugs is the U.S. dollar. And that is to a large extent, largely untraceable. I mean, you can you can have numbered bills and you can kind of trace where those numbers go. But 
you know, a couple washes through the laundry cycle and that is completely untraceable. Whereas Bitcoin, this general ledger traces every single transaction since 2009. So with the proper tools, you can go through and see where things have gone. Now, the caveat on that is that each of these addresses is a series of letters and numbers that by itself is not traceable. But So I can get the Bitcoin and I can disguise w- myself in getting the Bitcoin. But that particular Bitcoin that moves around is it's the public could conceivably yeah. track it. Yeah, exactly. They know what machine it's on or what account it's it's tied to, but they don't know who necessarily owns that account or Yeah, I mean so so you could trace I mean if you're if you're exchanging uh you know, if you're buying Bitcoin with US dollars, you would go to a Bitcoin exchange and so they would have your email address and and a lot of these exchanges into to meet with the government regulation have started to take I mean similar to Alipay and and the platforms here in China is real name uh, so you have to verify your identity, you know, upload your passport, give some details so that they can track you. So how how can, does one you know. go about setting up a Bitcoin exchange? Let's say I, I, I want to do that and I, I live here in, in China. Yeah, probably you personally wouldn't want to do that. Right. Uh, it's very competitive space. And that that's kind of one of the areas that's really proliferated. Then let, let's pretend that, yeah, I, I don't want to face this this the current Shark Tank around this, but uh, if I want, if I were uh, one of the initial pioneers and I wanted to set up a, a Bitcoin exchange here in China, what's involved in that? There is no central Bitcoin authority to whom I have to to apply. I just yeah, no, I just uh, set it up. Right? I mean, that, that's one of the things about the industry is because it's completely unregulated. It's like trading stamps. You know, if you want to trade stamps, you just set up a stamp exchange, um, and that's really when Bitcoin first started. Uh, there was a website called Local Bitcoins, and so you would. At, at its very simplistic form, you would communicate with people who either wanted to buy or sell, and you'd go to your local coffee shop. That person would give you cash, and you would give them bitcoins or vice versa. Now, that's uh, advanced since then. And so now there are electronic sh- exchanges, which much like the stock market, there's high-frequency trading. There's people that are uh, doing market making on these accounts to basically provide um, a supply of Bitcoin and a supply of dollars or, or whatever currency it is that wants to buy Bitcoin. And, and what's the total size of currency in circulation at, at, at say, at, at peak, uh, at peak number of Bitcoins in circulation X, the number of, of, of or the price of Bitcoins say, when they were over the $1,000 peak? That was at a time when there were, what, tens of millions of Bitcoins? In yeah, I think at that point there were about 13 million, okay. between 10 and 13 million. Uh, so, yeah, doing the math on that, it's it's over a billion. Yeah, $1.3 billion. Um, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about the value is that, you know, the value is the belief that people have in it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of the value last year was driven by speculation because for something to have value, you have to be able to trade it for something else. So, you know, I know I can go into Starbucks and I can spend $3 on a latte. I can buy a house in San Francisco for $3 million. You know, I know that the U.S. dollar has value. But with Bitcoin, it's still in kind of an area of what they call price discovery or, you know, what is the proper value of Bitcoin? Um, you know, it could be zero. It could be tens of thousands of dollars. So the, the value the Bitcoin markets put on it uh, at the height of it um, last year was, what, $1,400 uh, It was Yeah, it was over over 1000 US. And then uh, what, what was the, the fairly dramatic fall in the value really caused by Chinese government? regulations that basically said you can't really use this as a currency is that right pretty much pretty much and the, the so what happened can you explain explain that sure they they didn't actually say you couldn't they they said that it wasn't a currency that it was basically a commodity but it wasn't illegal so people could still hold bitcoin people could still trade in bitcoin what they did say though is they wanted the banks out of there 
They didn't want any direct connections between the banks and Bitcoin. Not only banks, also other kinds of financial services providers, yeah, right? Like, like a- anyone doing payments, you couldn't, exactly. you couldn't legally deal with Bitcoin yeah. if you were like Union Pay or Alipay. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, I want to get more into what, you know, SAFE and, and the, uh, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange and, and uh, the uh, China Banking Regulatory Commission what said about these things. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this whole mining process and uh, specifically uh, how ASICs mining contributed to China's increased participation in, in, in Bitcoin creation and how this may have sort of warped the expected curve of, of when uh, it would it would reach its actual cap. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is ASICs mining? What, what, sure, you're, sure. You're a chip guy, right? Tell us <laughs> so, so what's an ASIC? So, I mean, if, if you think about mining, you have to have some kind of device, some kind of computer. And, and mining, basically, you, you solve calculations with that computer. Um, and if it's the correct calculation, you're rewarded with Bitcoin. And, and more processing power means that you can process more of these calculations and your chances of getting Bitcoin are, are higher. So initially, when there weren't so many people mining, uh, you could use your personal computer. You could use a laptop. You could use a desktop to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the processor, uh, essentially the CPU that was in the computer, that advanced so that people started to use their graphics cards, their GPUs to mine right. it. Um, without getting too technical, that just became inefficient. Um, and somebody came up with the idea of ASICs, which essentially the, the easiest way to think about an ASIC chip is it's designed specifically to mine Bitcoin. It right. has one task. Application specific. Which exactly, is what exactly. The A and the S stand for. Yeah, ASICs so if are. you use it for Microsoft Word, it wouldn't work, but using it for mining, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so the first company to actually ship an ASIC miner was a, as a, a Chinese company. Um, now, one of the ideas, one of the core... Um, fundamentals of Bitcoin is that it the supply of Bitcoin increases at a steady rate. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if there are supposed to be 100 Bitcoins that are made today, regardless of how many people are mining, there can only be 100 Bitcoins that are given out as rewards. So what happens then is you have this kind of arms race. So originally, you know, you and I are mining, so we have two computers, and then Jeremy starts mining, so it's three computers. They still have to give out the same 100 Bitcoins, but now instead of splitting it between two computers, you're splitting it among three computers. So basically, it becomes more difficult to mine. And these ASIC machines were able to do it in a much more efficient way than the, the other computers. And that, you know, that drove uh, a lot of what was happening in China as well, because the mining, uh, the mining of Bitcoin still, both the manufacturing of the machines and the mining itself, a lot of it is concentrated here uh, in China. And so that, it's sort of a lucky draw where my big crushing ASICs machine is going to be able to put more uh, more tickets into the into the, the lucky draw box. Right? Exactly, exactly. Right. But the, the amount of Bitcoin is still... You're only going to give away five prizes, right? Exactly, right, right, right. exactly. And that five prizes doesn't change, so... Okay, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, the other thing I'm, I'm wondering is, what was it in Chinese society that made uh, China such a hotbed for for Bitcoin speculation? What, what was this? Was this a downturn in the property market? What, what, why did people see this as a? I mean, you, you gave some uh, I mean, suggestions that uh, where the the stock market used to be a kind of one way ride up, uh, it was no longer the case. Is is that what it, what it was mainly? Is that that uh, the stock market had become a lot more dicey and this it's, looked like the sure bet now. As we were doing the research for the book, we talked to a number of people, kind of individual investors, sure. uh, both kind of amateur and serious in Bitcoin and why they got into it. I think certainly if you look at investments for um, you know the, the people who have money to invest here in China, they're, they're somewhat limited. 
you know, buying a property now here in Beijing or in Shanghai is an expensive proposition because you have to put so much money down. So for a certain sub-segment of the population, it's kind of stocks, right? That right. was, and you know, the, the stock market over the past couple of years hasn't been doing that well. So Bitcoin, I'm sure for certain people was an investment tool, uh, as well as some of the people that we talked to, it kind of represents uh, a different way or freedom. Uh, you know, the, the fact that it's, and and this is something you're that's you you point out in your book. There's a kind of a libertarian streak in China here too to a lot of the yeah. Bitcoin people. I've noticed that the, the the Chinese Bitcoin fanatics that I know, three of them, <laughs> are all uh, living in Beijing from small provincial towns, and uh, have some money. And every possible investment they could make can completely be fucked with by the government at any time except for Bitcoin. And that seems to be a, 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 a driving phenomenon. I don't know if that's... Yeah, you certainly. That's but it, right. You know, yeah. the thing is, it's not just here in China. That's everywhere. Uh, I mean, mm. it, there's a lot of talk right now with U.S. doing all the quantitative easing. You know, that one U.S. dollar that's in your pocket is worth a lot less today than it was a couple of years ago. But I think it's more frustrating for Chinese people because in the U.S., it's less likely that the government will use eminent domain and just chai your house and tell you to piss off and give sure. you five kwai for your, your property. Whereas in China, that people fear that. Even if, you know, it may not be that common in Beijing, but everybody's kind of neurotic about that, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the people that we talk to, especially the, the individual investors, had that libertarian streak, you know, had that. Mm. For them, it was kind of an escape from the control of the government. You know, this is something that nobody can touch because realistically, you can't, you can't shut down Bitcoin. So what the government did was disconnect the banks. So people found ways around that. You know, the Chinese are very crafty when it comes to money. And, and certainly these exchanges, you know, originally they were funding uh, people's accounts using personal bank accounts or personal Alipay accounts. So, you know, mm -hmm. before you would transfer into the corporate account, now you're transferring into the guy's personal account to get the money onto the platform. Right. But you can't shut down Bitcoin without shutting down the internet. But have they managed to shut down uh, China's um, capability to be a, a sort of Bitcoin innovator in terms of Bitcoin platforms and companies that are trying to grow Bitcoin connected services? I think certainly in terms of the exchanges, uh, the Chinese exchanges are some of the more advanced actually in the world right mm. now. Um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And a lot of these guys have gotten funny, uh, sorry, gotten funding for their exchanges. So you can't just, you know, if you've got- Was that a Freudian slip? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, can't just, uh, you can't just shut down if you've got $6 million sitting in the bank and your VC breathing down your neck, right? right. So these guys are working on, you know, they're expanding internationally. They're, they've got some very sophisticated trading tools on their platforms now. Um, so and they're still not doing anything illegal. They just can't process payments easily. One of the more interesting things, if you have a conversation with any of these CEOs of the exchanges, they'll be very quick to point out that Bitcoin is not illegal in China. Hmm. It's just not usable. <laughs> right, right. They don't point out that second bit, but it's essentially the case, right? So the, the regulatory hammer that eventually came down, was it being wielded by what, what government agency was this? Would this have been? PBOC. P yeah, yeah, PBOC. Bank of China. Right, yeah. Interesting. The Central Bank of China. Um, I think which, which takes us into the, the other topic. I mean, I think this is this one of many uh, sort of financial innovations or innovations in financial markets uh, that uh, we've seen the Chinese government take, you know, uh, different different attitudes toward. They're either willing or unwilling to to see or innovation. Uh, talking about you know introduction of virtual currencies, about new and very potentially disruptive financial products like Alipay's or Alibaba's. You, you know, Yuabao and its ilk, 
uh, and and there are a number of others. I'm um, Jeremy. I know the. Yeah, I mean, this is. I, I guess we were talking about this before, Kaiser. But I mean, I, I'm very pessimistic about just about everything in China right now. I'm down on everything, but there are a few things that I'm not down on. And one of them is internet finance because it seems to me that China is really in a position to be like a leading edge innovator. Uh, I, I've been using WeChat. Uh, I, they finally allowed foreigners to use a passport to verify your bank card. So I have money on my WeChat thing. And I've been paying for stuff at convenience stores, taxis, like sending people money even in other countries. I just love it. It's just so wonderful. It's so, It works so well. It seems to me that China is could be, if the government lets it happen, the world's uh, – most innovative sort of new financial services country. Does that make sense? Do you think that's yeah, realistic? I, I completely agree. I mean, we, we did some research on Uebao when it first came out um, last year. And as it's- and Uebao, let's just explain. So that's Alibaba. They, it's a wealth management product. In other words, a, an investment product where you can put money in easily online and then you get a better rate of interest in the bank. Well, it's sort of a good way of you, talking about it, which is you know your, your, the extra money that you have in uh, in an Alipay account. Uh, it's sort of you know money that's just sitting there, and not going to any use. It's, and then they were investing it in right, right. money I mean, markets it's, it's or something. Just very very small amounts of money, and sort of consolidating it and putting it into right. And then yeah. paying pretty handsome rates of return on it. Yeah, and and that's something you know for 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 the people who don't have Alipay wallet on their phones. I mean, it's essentially a mobile app that allows you to do payments. Kind of you know, PayPal never really got there in their implementation of this, and and you know, mobile payments never really picked up in Western countries enough to allow them to do that. But yeah, PayPal. I mean. Can I just bitch about PayPal? What, what is wrong with PayPal? What is wrong with PayPal? It is the worst internet service. I mean, it hasn't changed since the 1990s. Every time I use it, it, it freezes me out because I'm in the wrong country because I forgot to switch my VPN on, off or on or something. WeChat is such an amazing example of how yeah. online payments should work seamlessly. Yeah, yeah. yeah? And, and there's nothing... The interesting thing is there's no advantage that the tech companies here in China have that any other tech company around the world doesn't have. So, you know, there's nothing to stop Google from doing this or PayPal from doing this. Why, and, and why don't they? They've tried. They've tried, but it just hasn't been successful. And that's that's the thing. I mean, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. Like when UABAL first came out, so it's 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 essentially instant liquidity, which means that you can move money on and off the platform very quickly. And mm-hmm. and typically, you know, for a bank deposit, the banks are limited. They'll lock you in for a while, right? Yeah, and they're limited in what interest they can give on their deposits. Right? And it's so, terribly low, too. I mean, it's pathetically low here, uh, r- rates of... Of, of bank deposit interest are, are, are better better than Western countries, but yeah, still still low compared to other products. And so we've seen over the past five years, you know, a lot of wealth management products. So typically, bank deposits are at three three percent, roughly. You know, is what you'll get if you just leave your money in the bank. And then these wealth management products will pay seven or eight six percent. seven eight. Yeah. So when you about first came out, it was paying six or seven percent, but instant. So you know, you're not tied into three months or six months. You you can take it off the platform instantly, and that's. Instant. Incredible flexibility of withdrawal regimes. Exactly, right, right, right. exactly, exactly. So and that's something perfect for the Chinese small holder. As it were, yeah. Right. Well, not not necessarily even small, right? I mean, it's 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 one of the more. I mean, nothing is risk free in this world, but it's one of the more risk free products that people can put their money on, even um, if you have a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And are you surprised to see the sort of uh, leniency that the regulators have shown toward these kinds of uh, novel products? I think the interesting thing about it is that these products solve problems. 
Right. So a lot of the things that we're seeing Alibaba do now uh, in terms of their ant financials, so the kind of the financial arm that contains Alipay, Yuebao, all these other products, they're solving problems that the government and the regulators have. So shadow banking, as an example, shadow lending, which is essentially off balance sheet lending that banks do out the back door or, you know, informal lending. Uh, one guy lends to another guy at a serious rate of interest. Those things are problems for the financial industry. To a certain extent, the the things that the tech companies are doing are solving those problems. So, Absolutely. So, t- you know, on Taobao, there's microcredit for these small and medium enterprises. And small and medium enterprises is the bread and butter of China's growth story. That's right. right? That's but also people, impossible so you, to get a loan from a conventional bank. So yeah. this is solving yeah. that problem. Yeah. So then are you actually seeing that, that things like uh, Yuobao, uh, like P2P, uh, lending platforms like uh, microcredit on Alibaba, things like this. Are they ha- are they eating into the shadow banking industry? Are they actually it, taking a bite out of it? Yeah, it's it's very difficult to tell. I mean, one would assume that they are, but you know, it's obviously di- very difficult to tell what the the shadow lending numbers are. I think certainly with with the numbers that all of these platforms are putting up in terms of their growth, it, it's certainly helping the small medium enterprises. Um, and, and I would guess, yeah, it must be it must be helping that. What about P2P lending sites? So this is another sort of category, I suppose, of internet finance. And I believe there are about more than a thousand of them operating in China. And P2P is peer-to-peer. So that means basically I need a loan and I put my request for a loan on the site because I'm a student or I'm a small business person. And then people with money agree to loan and I uh, uh, take the loan and then pay them interest and if i don't pay them they can rate me and say i'm a, a, a deadbeat and nobody will lend me again but if i i pay my debt then uh, i can get more money uh, is is this a a big thing and um how is it working what, what what's its place in the sort of financial landscape of what kind of financial finance? throughput are we seeing i mean are, we, are there numbers that you can attach to the size of that market yeah, I don't have numbers with me right now, but uh-huh. I, I think certainly, you know, peer-to-peer lending in China has been here for, for decades, sure. if not centuries, right? I mean, you, you know, lending money between people, and you, you saw a lot of the remnants of that in Wenzhou and a lot of the financial centers where uh, a lot of these loans have gone bad, you know, um, and and people have been charged really high rates uh, for borrowing money. And if you're a small medium enterprise in China and you can't get money from your bank because all of the money is going to state-owned enterprises— what other choice do you have, mm. you know, at that time? And so, the internet has simply facilitated this and yeah. grown it. Yeah. Mm. So uh, the first, we, we looked at peer-to-peer lending and kind of the first site in, I mean, it, it's been going on in the West since kind of 2003, 2004 were the first sites that were up, but it was really 2007 here in China that the first peer-to-peer lending site was up on the internet, but then it's it's simply expanded since then. And again, going back to the point, like, where do you put your money? Uh, you know, you can get, six to ten percent on these sites you know if you're if you're one of the lenders and mm-hmm. you're lending out and and your risk portfolio you can adapt that based on the credit history of the people that are on there sure but it's still an unsecured loan that you're making right yeah yeah and it's unregulated as right. well i mean that's the thing this is like there's Bit- no fdic or anything yeah like that. yeah i mean like bitcoin peer-to-peer lending uh about none of this is really regulated at this point. Now, UABAO is based off of uh, an actual regulated asset management product, but the way that UABAO works, uh, you know, there's no regulations around that right now. So it's all three areas that we've talked about are are tremendously growth areas in China. 
but I think the regulators haven't really decided how they're going to handle uh, the latter two, anyways. I mean, Bitcoin, it's pretty clear, but this is things. usually how things go in China. There's a lot. Yeah. There's sort of this unregulated activity around the edges, and when it becomes important, right? Step I mean, in with you regulation. ask for forgiveness yeah. rather than for permission. I mean, what about uh, things that I I've called Taobao funds, by which I mean um, basically funds that appear to be sort of traditional. Um, uh, funds which would hold a portfolio of stocks uh, or hold some money that they tie to some kind of index, um, but are now offering uh, themselves on the internet via Taobao. So you can you know, just put in a few hundred quiet and invest in some, some kind of fund. Do you know much about these? Well, it's it's essentially Taobao being used as a di- distribution channel. Um, I mean, you're by about, conventional. What would you call them? Trust companies, fund companies. Yeah, asset yeah. management companies. Asset management companies. Yeah. yeah. So those are just regular funds. You know, like your Vanguard fund in the U.S. That you would. Now, the, what's really unique and what the tech companies are really doing a good job on. I mean, uh, Baidu is an example as well. I think it's by by far. Yeah. Well, is, so I mean, we're we're a relatively small player, and I should probably make that disclosure that uh, I do. You work, work for, for Baidu. Uh, and blah, 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 blah. You're not guilty or you are of everything. But, yeah. but what these guys are doing is they're, they're presenting it to people in a way that they want to be presented. So, you know, Jeremy, you were just talking about the way you use WeChat. You like the fact that you can use it for payments, right? So what if people started selling you asset management products on that platform? You're essentially reaching the consumer, reaching the investor in the way that they want to do it. And, and it's just a couple of clicks. So yeah. people like that. Yeah, yeah, super easy. What do you suppose it is that's prevented this kind of innovation happening in the United States? Why why haven't there hasn't been a sort of C two A model, a copy to America kind of going on with 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 these things? They seem like they're they've got a kind of universal appeal, or I think they would. Yeah, well, peer to peer lending is, sure, is, sure, sure. is big in the U S. Yeah. Um, in terms of this, the fund distribution online, it's you know I think there are certain regulations that prevent that. Um, there are, I mean, people in the U S. are very used to online brokerages. So E-Trade. Or, you already have in, investors yeah, doing yeah. that. Yeah. There, there's some. So, you know, I think China skipped, I guess, you know, instead of going for an online brokerage model, uh, you know, the U.S. has kind of gone through that. So originally you would go to your bank to buy the financial product or you would go to Charles Schwab and call up your broker. Then it went online. I guess maybe it hasn't needed to get to the point of... Ameritrade and E-Trade and stuff Yeah, like it hasn't, hasn't needed to get to the point of having a Taobao for financial products. But China's I, essentially skipped, skipped ahead almost. I must say, I would also say, I think in some ways the U.S. is amazingly conservative when it comes to financial services. I mean, checks are still a thing in the United States, like paper checks that you sign with a pen, which I think is quite amazing. I mean, in a lot of countries, this isn't the case anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it, you you look. I mean, when I first got to China, I, I thought the the I, I mean the one of the one of the stories I love is that when I when I first moved to Shanghai to pay my rent because you couldn't transfer between banks without filling out reams of paperwork. Sure. And so I had to go to my bank, which was ICBC, get out, out a wad of money in right. a paper bag, go go across the street. I would take a number at the Bank of China. And then depending on what that number was, I'd probably go to lunch and then come back <laughs> when my number was called. And if it was a good day, I came back at the right time and then deposit the money in my landlord's account. And you think about that today, I pay, I pay my landlord with Alipay. Right. 
It's so yeah, it's amazing. it's changed yeah. it's changed Matt. Yeah, I pay everything with my phone. I mean, I know it is amazing. Yeah. Whereas for most of my life in China, most of my financial transactions have been like cash in a brown paper bag, and suddenly in the last two years, it's all on a mobile phone. What, what kind of cash transactions are you doing? <laughs> publishing. You know, I, I alluded it's, it's, to it's that earlier at the beginning. <laughs> of the Publishing. Publishing. Trend. Publishing. <laughs> well, it, absolutely fascinating topic, um, and I I really highly recommend the book uh, Chomping at the Bitcoin. It's it's extremely easy to read, uh, and I mean, even for somebody who is a complete neophyte to virtual currencies. To and there's a print and an electronic version, that's right? right? So, right. yeah, I think the, the electronic version is available on all the channels. I'm not sure if the print version. I think it should be available. Well, I have right. a print copy, and it looks okay. nice. It's so. all about 80 pages long, <laughs> so it's something you can just sit down, um, you know, over over lunch or a cup of coffee, and 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 finish pretty quickly. It's a terrific primer, and uh, I, I I know I came away with it with. From, from it with a whole lot more knowledge about Bitcoin than I had going in. Uh, and so I'm very grateful for you. Uh, and, and thanks to Penguin for putting out this great series. This is, um, I mean, they, they've done quite a few of these. And, and before we go into recommendations, uh, Kaiser, Zenon, I just want to ask you one question, which I'm sure you're not unfamiliar with, which is, can you tell us about your name? Yeah, so uh, my parents picked it out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, originally it was Z-E-N-O-N. Uh-huh. And then uh, because John Lennon was popular at the time, they changed, added an extra N. And okay. And it became Zenon. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, I Googled Zenon the name, and there was some like really uh, kind of crazy video game reference. But, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering. Anyway, thank you. So recommendations. Uh, yeah, let's move to recommendations. We have a... a, a tradition here of beginning with Jeremy. So why don't we start with you? Sure. I'm going to recommend something that I have done before, but the site has been uh, renovated and relaunched, which is phonemica.net. And oh, great. Yeah. We've had the producers on, on the show before, which is a, a website dedicated to uh, allowing people to upload di- various Chinese dialects, uh, stories dialects. told uh, told in, in, in different Chinese uh, languages and dialects, languages, dialects and languages accents. And, uh, and uh, you know it's connected with maps um, uh, and various bits and bobs. A really, really amazing effort that I would like to support. Fun. Hours of fun. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's a, it's such a noble project. I love it. And of course, the, uh, the founders of it. Are, have been variously accused of, you know, uh, being spies, splitism, or, or you know, whatever. <laughs> it's it's anyway. As but, somebody said uh, about that on the internet, like this is why we can't have good things here. <laughs> uh, but the the site is phonemica dot net. P H O N E M I C A dot net. Any sites that end with I C A are good in my book. Um, yeah, Zenon, which rhymes with Lenin. What's your uh, your recommendation for the week? Um, I'm a bit late to it, but. Uh, I finally got around to reading the Wired interview on Edward Snowden. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, oh, my God, yeah. And there's a lot of criticism about it, that it was kind well, of softball. But, yeah, it's very softball. Um, I mean, it's, it's incredibly interesting. And then that got me interested in um, the book No Place to Hide, which is by Glenn Greenwald. Mm-hmm. And so he was one of the he was one of the reporters from The Guardian that was originally meeting with Snowden. And, it, you know, I, with Bitcoin, you, you, you meet a lot of libertarian people who are very anti-government, a lot of tinfoil hat people. Mm. And... Uh, it was just interesting to read about the the kind of the backstory behind that and the ideas behind it. I found it it's an incredible read. It's very, very quick but very informative. Yeah, and and, and related to that, you should definitely read the New Yorker uh, piece, a very very long piece about Laura Poitras, the uh, the documentary filmmaker who's who's uh, 
got a new f- film out about Snowden. Citizen Four. Citizen Four, that's right. And related to that, you should also listen to the On the Media podcast from last week, which has an interview with the author of that New Yorker piece on the Laura Poitras documentary on Edward Snowden. <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I'm going to uh, recommend something entirely different here. Um, this is a, a uh, book by... Barry R. Posen, who is an MIT political science professor, called Restraint, a new foundation for U.S. grand strategy, which was uh, published this, this summer in June. It's kind of an antidote to you know his his recommendations as how to deal with the problem of imperial overreach and what he calls the the current paradigm, the current reigning grand strategy, um, which you know the Clinton era. Uh, Democrats and W-era neocons kind of tacitly or explicitly supported. Um, he, he calls it liberal hegemony. Um, advocates instead, you know, uh, kind of restraint. I mean, it might be described as isolationism. I think that's not terribly char- charitable. I think it's just sort of uh, picking your battles a little more wisely, the ones that are actually winnable. Uh, he thinks advocates a strategy of sort of command of the commons, you know, the important sea lanes, space, public areas where uh, that where American interests could you know genuinely be threatened, instead of the effort to impose um, or to to try to plant democratic seeds on very hostile soil. And again, I mean, as we survey the wreckage of, of the Arab Spring, I think it's a chastening lesson. Um, so yeah, that's my recommendation for the week. Uh, People probably sense a kind of political drift in my in my thinking of late. <laughs> yeah, well, show, but, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we play out, I think we we neglected to ask Zanin one question, which was, "Do you hold Bitcoin yourself?" Ah, right. I'm an interested party. Right. Okay. okay. You are an interested. Well, I confess to being a member of that clan. So. Really, you you, you own Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin. Really? Not very much, but... Okay. You know, I I think one of the things is that it's, regardless if you believe in it or not, it's a really interesting thought experiment. Absolutely. You know, to learn about... It it poses a lot of questions about what we think about political uh, regimes, monetary systems. And it makes for very, very strange bedfellows, I find, because people who are into Bitcoin, it's all kinds. (laughs) It's really all kinds. (laughs) Well, great. Uh, you can pay for this show in Bitcoin, and uh, thanks very much. Send for us Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, thanks very much, Zen, and that was, that was fabulous. Um, very, very uh, educational for me. Uh, and folks, we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. Take care.